The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Taking the Targeted Option for Myelofibrosis Insights on Modern Jack Inhibitors Platforms and Emerging Therapeutics. Access the entire activity and complete the post test at peerview.com forward slash YJX860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome to this event from PureView Live, taking the targeted option for myelofibrosis, insights on modern JAK inhibitor platforms and emerging therapies. I'm joined here by tonight with two wonderful friends and world-renowned MPN experts, both Dr. Katrina Jamison, a professor at UC San Diego, and my good friend John Mascarenas, a professor at uh, Mount Sinai School of Medicine. So our focus tonight is myelofibrosis. And again, this is a disease that both can originate in the primary state or evolving from ET or P. vera. In earlier disease, of course, we have a variety of difficulties patients can face, high counts, certain sets of symptoms, risk of thrombosis. But progression to overt myelofibrosis can come with cytopenias, increasing fibrosis in the bone marrow, as you can see, whether they're staying with reticulin or trichome, uh, leukoerythroblastosis, splenomegaly symptoms, and the potential of transformation to acute leukemia. And all of this occurs in the set of an evolving understanding of both driver mutations as well as additional somatic mutations. Now, the diagnostic workup for myelofibrosis, in addition to your core exam, CBC, blood counts, LDH, et cetera, include certainly excluding CML. Uh, there certainly can be a lot of mimicry, so certainly be certain to exclude BCR-ABLE. A bone marrow aspirin biopsy is really considered universally necessary for diagnosing this entity. Cytogenetics, if you can obtain them, certainly back to and driver mutation status, uh, additional uh, NGS panels. Certainly be sure to capture their symptoms, not only just asking questions, but really use the uh, tools out there, the MPN 10, 10 symptoms that really help to quantify that baseline symptomatology. Get a sense of medications, need for transfusions. Obviously, if they're younger, higher risk, we may be thinking about HLA typing uh, in terms of possible stem cell transplantation in the future, uh, et cetera. Now, this is a disease that we manage largely both based on the concept of risk as well as disease burden. With risk, there are innumerable different prognostic scores that are out there. Our current guidelines uh, recognize that in terms of guiding therapy, we can use these scores, but largely we triage patients to lower risk or higher risk, with higher risk being a greater consideration of transplantation and lower risk, either observation or medical therapy. Now, with these prognostic model, models, I'll highlight two of them. There are more, but I think that these uh, are useful for the majority of individuals. Uh, on the right side, you have the DIPSS Plus, which looks at both uh, symptoms, blood counts, and karyotype to come up with a prognostic value. Over time, as we are able to obtain additional genetic testing, the MIPSS-70 is very helpful, both recognizing the negative prognostic implications of uh, mutations such as ASX01, IDH1 and 2, EZH2. You know, these all can really have an additional biological negative, in addition to building on those other clinical features, uh, even severe fibrosis that can be prognostic for these patients. Now, our guidelines, and Kat uh, and I were the original inaugural panel chair and vice chair for the NCCN guidelines. We largely triage individuals to lower risk or higher risk. And in lower risk individuals, truly if you were asymptomatic, both by the symptom score as well as asking the patient, perhaps we were best off observing patients. That may change over time. Now, symptomatic patients, we think might benefit from therapy with either jack inhibition, depending upon their difficulty, or if they have other problematic features, perhaps early use of uh, pegylated interferon. 
higher risk individuals, which is the vast majority, we would typically triage patients. If they were high risk, possibly a good stem cell transplant candidate, we might move toward transplant perhaps with a run-in with a JAK inhibitor. Non-transplant candidates, we really distinguish based on baseline platelet count. Should we consider uh, ruxolitinib or fedratinib as frontline options? Or if they were markedly thrombocytopenic, procuritinib as a frontline option. With any of these therapies potentially being second line, if the frontline options were not efficacious. All of this we need to monitor for signs, symptoms of disease progression and response. Now, with the JAK inhibitors, we have ruxolitinib approved in intermediate and high risk, fedratinib approved uh, broadly against intermediate and high risk, both in frontline and second line. Procritinib with a narrower but specific indication for those with marked thrombocytopenia, and we'll get into those data in just a little bit. Other therapies in development you'll be hearing about this evening include mamelotinib for individuals with anemia, both a JAK2 and, and ACVR1 inhibitor. And you'll be hearing from Dr. Jameson a little later, different novel mechanisms of action, everything from bed inhibition to uh, BCL-XL. Now, transplant can cure myelofibrosis. However, it comes with significant risk and upfront risk. So with it, it's a complex discussion that we have with patients uh, that the higher the risk, the younger you are, the better you are a candidate, the more attractive an option it is. It's complex because it is a trade-off in terms of risk and potential long-term survival. And anyone who says that it's an easy decision is not someone that's had to face the decision for they themselves. As we think about therapy, again, we have... Uh, challenges with the use of ruxolinib in the long term. Some individuals will certainly come off for a range of reasons, and reasons for ending can include anything from need to switch to a different medication, uh, need for moving to transplantation, uh, resistance, intolerance, or ability to participate in a clinical trial. So our goals for today are really for you to have a better sense, both the new therapies that have been approved or are in use, but also why the clinical need for these therapies as they were developed, as well as where our therapy is going to be going in the near future. So let's get into our first section with uh, my colleague, John Mascarenas, the modern customized use of JAK inhibitors. How do we elevate care? John? Uh, leader of the Model Proliferative Disorders Program there at uh, Tisch Cancer Institute, along with our wonderful colleague, Ron Hoffman. Why don't you take us through upfront choices in MF? Right. Ruben, thanks for the introduction. I'm, I'm really excited to be here with you and Kat today. And we'll get right into it with our first tumor board case. This is Patrick. He's a 60-year-old gentleman with confirmed diagnosis of myelofibrosis. He presents with a spleen that's 16 centimeters below the costal margin. It's a very big spleen. Uh, he has bone pains that are diffuse, pretty bad at night, interrupts his sleep, uh, night sweats, overwhelming fatigue, and has lost uh, significant weight over the last six months. His platelet count is less than 50,000 routinely. His hemoglobin is 9.5. White count is 24,000, 2% blast. And on NGS testing, he's noted to harbor both JAK2, TET2, as well as, as, well as the high molecular risk marker ASXL1. And um, he is... He is not yet ready for a transplant, I think, both psychologically and a donor has not yet been uh, made available for him. So really the questions that we have that we're going to think about as we go through this next section is, uh, what do you do? Do you just simply wait for the donor? Uh, do you treat immediately? And if you do treat, what do you treat with? So that's really the thoughts uh, as we move into the didactic part of this section. So here again, I'm showing the, um, the NCCN guidelines uh, that are adapted for the high-risk patient profile, uh, pointing out in the red box the fact that there is a decision node when platelets are less than 50,000 uh, for either pacritinib um, or, cl or clinical trial if available. I will say that most clinical trials do exclude patients who have low platelets, um, but there are some trials that are out there, and this is really an unmet need. So treating patients with low platelets is both challenging uh, and low platelets themselves are, uh, are clearly a uh, independent prognostic marker for poor outcome. 
So our, our option for critinib is based off of two uh, phase three studies. Here I'm showing you the pivotal uh, PERSIST-2 study. This was patients who had uh, intermediate or high-risk myelofibrosis and who had, by definition, a cytopenic myelofibrosis phenotype. So platelet count less than 100,000. Um, they could have seen a JAK inhibitor previously, and almost half of them did. And they were randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion to picritinib 400 milligrams once daily, 200 milligrams twice daily, that's now the approved dose, or best available therapy, which could also include a JAK inhibitor. And once again, about half the patients ended up receiving JAK inhibition, namely low-dose picritinib. The co-primary endpoint at 24 weeks was spleen volume reduction of 35% or greater, and a total symptom improvement of 50% or greater. And what did we see? Very strikingly and very obviously, picritinib was superior to best available therapy at 24 weeks in terms of spleen volume response, 22% versus 3%, uh, as well as symptom burden improvement, 35% versus 14%. Um, and specifically, if you look at patients with platelet counts less than 50,000, and, and why specifically here? Because that's really was the unmet need. Ruxolitinib and fidratinib, both, both excellent drugs, um, have a platelet threshold of 50,000 or greater. So Really, patients who presented prior to March of 2022 really had limited options, no approved option, and nothing that really could address effectively their spleen and symptom burden. And here, we look at the patients who had 50,000 or less platelets in the PERSIST-2, 29% versus 3% SPR 35%, and 26% versus 9% PSS 50%. So really quite active in this vulnerable patient population. Um, and even if you look at patient global impression of change, which I really like, um, in terms of how do patients generally feel, they felt a lot better, uh, the majority of the patients, on picritinib um, compared to best available therapy. Now, importantly and sort of unexpectedly, or, or, or maybe not even uh, initially really appreciated, was there was an anemia improvement that was seen uh, with picritinib as shown here. So the 200 milligram twice daily, a clinical improvement in anemia, which means a two gram per deciliter increase in hemoglobin or conversion from transfusion dependence independence achieved in 25% versus 12%. But even if you look down the line, reduction in transfusion burden in the middle, and then if you look at units per month, a reduction from baseline from 1.06 units per month in blue with picritinib to 0 0.67 uh, at week 24. So there was a definite improvement in the, um, in the anemia aspect of the disease. And we now know um, that this is probably due to multiple mechanisms of action with picritinib, including the fact that it is uniquely an IRAC-1 inhibitor which works upstream from NF-kappa B and inflammatory cytokine signaling, but also because it is a potent ACVR1 inhibitor, which uh, mediates hepcidin expression and, um, and uh, iron availability for erythropoiesis. So what about um, toxicity here? I'm showing you the adverse event profile um, with APAC 200 milligram twice daily versus best available therapy. This is a FLT3 inhibitor. As with all drugs in this class, there is some degree of GI toxicity. It's mostly low grade. Um, it's mostly in the first one to two months. Very easy to, uh, to counteract with an antiemetic or antidiarrheal. Rarely a reason for discontinuation. So as long as you prep a patient for the potential for GI toxicity, very easy um, uh, non-hematologic adverse event um, overcome. Otherwise, really wasn't a significant um, toxicity profile. This drug was put on a full clinical hold for a brief period of time in 2017 due to concerns by the FDA of increased cardiovascular and bleeding risk uh, leading to uh, mortality risk with picritinib. When the data was reviewed in its entirety, um, it was clear that there really wasn't an increased cardiac uh, toxicity risk with picritinib, uh, perhaps at least in the PERSIST-2, uh, an increased bleeding risk, which might be independent of the depth of thrombocytopenia. Um, and generally speaking, um, we try to avoid patients who have a clear bleeding diathesis, um, who are on anticoagulation, um, or um, have an undiagnosed uh, coagulopathy. So there are certain patient populations you might need to be careful, but this is uh, easy to, uh, to avoid in the majority of patients with thrombocytopenia that are in need of uh, JAK inhibition. Uh, it's important to note that uh, other studies, um, like the study uh, uh, presented and published by uh, Moshe Talpaz and, and colleagues, looked at exploring uh, lower doses of ruxolitinib or Jacify in patients with platelet counts between 50 and 100,000. Importantly, the comfort studies were designed for a baseline platelet count of 100,000 or greater, so additional information was needed uh, in order to provide confidence to the practitioner that ruxolitinib could be dosed 
in patients with 50 to 100,000. And in this strategy, the investigators started at low doses, like five milligrams twice daily and titrated up to a target goal of 10 milligrams twice daily. As you can see by the, the waterfall plots that I have uh, listed here, you, you really uh, attenuate and compromise um, the spleen and symptom burden uh, response at doses less than 10 milligrams twice daily. So if you can't get to 10 milligrams twice daily, you're unlikely having a significant or meaningful impact on spleen and symptom burden with ruxolitib. And that's an important point um, to remember, uh, particularly when you have patients where you can't get to 10 twice a day uh, due to thrombocytopenia and one is looking to achieve optimal JAK inhibition. Here's some practical guidance on delivering therapies uh, with ruxolitinib. Um, this is uh, by nomogram for uh, dosing of rux by, by platelet count. Uh, between 50 and 100,000, you're looking at five milligrams twice daily as a starting dose. And then again, trying to try to titrate up over time, if tolerable, from an anemia and thrombocytopenia perspective, to at least 10 milligrams um, twice daily. Um, and then always uh, keeping an eye out for the potential for uh, infectious complications, which may be slightly increased in the setting of ruxolinib as a JAK1-2 inhibitor, um, and uh, the need for dose modification or dose holding. What about fedratinib? Also very effective and active uh, selective JAK2 inhibitor, uh, 400 milligrams once daily uh, with or without food. Personally, I think it's better with food. I think patients do better with, with uh, fedratinib with food. Also very easy to tolerate in terms of a GI perspective, anti-emetic, anti-diarrheal, usually within the first one to two months, rarely reason for discontinuation. If you do not prep the patient, they will be surprised and they will think the drug failed them. You have to keep that in mind. Uh, but, but a very effective uh, JAK inhibitor, uh, even in the second line in terms of salvaging spleen and symptom uh, response. So keep an eye on that. And of course, it does have a black box warning. The, the only one of the, of the JAK inhibitors we're talking about today for Wernicke's encephalopathy, so that's vitamin B1 deficiency. So please check a vitamin B1 level at baseline and every three months or make your life easier and put the patient on a B complex, very easy um, to deal with. And again, not a reason to shy away from an active JAK inhibitor. Um, and then with patritinib, it's 200 milligrams uh, twice daily. You do not need to dose reduce at initiation for platelet count. It's the same dose no matter what the patient's platelet count is. Um, as I said, uh, be careful of uh, bleeding. Uh, one might consider holding the drug in perioperatively um, and then make sure the patients have access to an anti-emetic and anti-diarrheal, um, particularly in those first couple of months. Um, and then watch the counts. I treat through the thrombocytopenia um, because often the counts will, will even out over time. And as we pointed out, there are patients who can achieve uh, significant anemia responses, but that sometimes is delayed. Um, and then of course, uh, watch the QTC prolongation. I watch it with any of these drugs, but with Pacritinib included. Um, and uh, there are parameters for holding it as listed here. So let's get back to our case. So Patrick, 60, big spleen, significant symptom burden, low platelets, um, and he has some high molecular risk uh, markers. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna open these questions up to my colleagues um, today now on, the, on our panel. Um, I, I think the first question is, what do you do? Do you wait for a donor or do you treat this patient? Ruben, you're our moderator, maybe you can start. What would you do in this case? Well, I, you know, I like to think of these situations as not you know, either or, but kind of and, you know, so one, I think we need to acknowledge that, you know, there's good sense from our field that most patients, if they need to go to transplant, probably are best off getting on a JAK inhibitor right away as you're starting that process. You know, almost nobody goes to transplant without at least a several week delay for approvals, testing, you know, pre-transplant testing, testing of siblings, et cetera. You know, so this is an individual 60, they got a, a big spleen, they have lots of symptoms, you know, they're markedly thrombocytopenic, they've got high risk features. So I certainly would, uh, you know, transplant them when, uh, when we can get there. But as it says, you know, we don't yet have a, a donor. So I think I, I would start, you know, and in this setting, with a marked thrombocytopenia, I think procreatinib would be uh, indicated. You know, it's perfectly uh, appropriate in the frontline setting for an individual with marked thrombocytopenia. Uh, Kat, what do you think? 
Yeah, I agree, Ruben. And when you had the prescient notion that we should start the NCCN panel back in 2016, we really were grappling with just one inhibitor, rexolitinib, which is very good, uh, but really is uh, suboptimal in platelet uh, counts less than 50 patients. So I think that uh, picritinib makes the most sense here, provided that somebody doesn't have a bleeding diathesis, does not have QT prolongation. It's actually a very well-tolerated drug. So usually we look for those um, adverse events before they happen. We try and predict and prevent. And, you know, a lot of patients don't want to consider a hematopoietic cell transplant up front. They really want to try something else. We know that HCT works better anyway if you reduce the disease burden. So I think picritinib's a choice. Uh, you know, if somebody's already on rexolitinib, it may be worth altering the dose and seeing if you could get back up. Uh, here, fedratinib could also be an option if for whatever reason they have a coagulopathy or QT prolongation. So I usually stratify by the patient's own risk of having an adverse outcome based on their comorbidities. Uh, but picritinib looks like the best choice here. Excellent. Thank you both. Um, so our patient um, does go on picritinib. Um, and uh, while the, uh, the donor search is ongoing, um, and then the data does support it, as we talked about. And this patient really enjoys a significant improvement in, in spleen, symptom burden, stabilization of the platelets, and even um, an improvement in, in hemoglobin. So I'm going to now pass the baton back over to Ruben for the next tumor board part. Wonderful. Well, great way to get us uh, get kicked off, John. So now we're going to focus on pretreated myelofibrosis and patients with anemia. And this is very relevant because, again, in the U.S., we estimate other than patients that are newly diagnosed, most patients with MF are, are on therapy based on the benefits that we've had. You know, many of those patients do have anemia. So here's an individual. He's 75. He's been on RUX10BID for a little over a year. His spleen is at four centimeters, so he's probably had some reduction with that uh, from baseline, so likely he's had benefit. Uh, he does not have significant abdominal symptoms, modest systemic symptoms, fatigue, et cetera. We do find that he's quite anemic, probably needs a transfusion. His hemoglobin is 6.5, white count is 14, platelets of 82, 2% blasts. You know, do we continue therapy as it is? Do we reduce the Rux, Rux dose? Do we add in another therapy? Do we switch to another JAK inhibitor? If so, which one? We'll get back to some of these questions after I share some some information with you. So currently, as we think about our, our guidelines, we showed you in the uh, earlier part when I gave you the introduction, you know, guidelines as it relates to lower risk and higher risk. Now, when we created the NCCN guidelines, we had a special call out specifically for individuals with anemia uh, for a range of reasons. One, we have not had an approved drug that really improved anemia for MF, and two, there are some other therapies that can be helpful. So with patients with higher risk MF or on therapy with a, a JAK inhibitor, uh, again, we're giving those individuals, uh, you know, we can consider a clinical trial, things of this nature, but we've not had kind of good uh, alternatives for anemia. Now, in terms of managing anemia, uh, one, if they're on a JAK inhibitor, we historically have kind of pressed on through. Uh, kind of despite the anemia. There have been patients I've had who were transfusion dependent, and the only option we had available at the time was ruxolitinib, and we kept them on ruxolitinib because the data would fairly clearly show that they're probably better off being on ruxolitinib with anemia than not being on anything at all. So certainly there's a benefit to being on JAK inhibition, but how can we optimize it further? Now, in terms of trying to improve anemia, we, one, considered supportive options, erythropoietin being one of them, or, or or parallel erythropoietin stimulating agents, with if the EPO level is under 500 to consider an ESA. I'll share with you that I think the greatest likelihood of response really is if that level is under 100. Uh, they have baseline renal insufficiency, but at least it can be considered if under 500. I think the key when using EPO is that don't be afraid to stop it if it is not working. Uh, I think. The negative is that there's people that get EPO, they have zero response, and they're still getting it like three years later. You know, please, you know, if they don't really have a benefit after three months, you know, and you feel that you've gone up sufficiently on the dose, just stop it. You know, it clearly does not work in everyone. 
Additionally, Danazol can have some activity, and that's been further validated even as a control arm in the momentum study. It has activity. Uh, next, the uh, IMIDs. Uh, and then Lospatoceptor has been used off-label, but is clearly trying to seek an on-label approval. Now, as we think about second-line therapy, Bidratinib is a good approved therapy that can be helpful in the second line that frequently, I think, is underutilized in the United States and needs to be considered more. The Jakarta 2 was a study that Dr. Harrison and I led that showed a response rate of roughly about one in three patients having a benefit for spleen and symptoms and those that had failed ruxolitinib. Uh, I think it's particularly good if they don't fall in the category of having pacritinib indicated with marked thrombocytopenia. So if you have patients that fit in that category, you don't have a clinical trial, certainly consider fidratinib. Mamelodinib is an agent that may well become commercially available soon, and I'll show you the reason why that is the case. It's a JAK1 and JAK2 inhibitor, as well as an ACVR1 inhibitor. From its early days of testing, we identified that in addition to improving spleen and symptoms, it could help to improve anemia. There were further studies done with Stephen O and others that seemed to suggest that the mechanism for the improvement in anemia may be a decrease in the inflammation associated with the disease, and that a decrease in hepcidin which causes an anemia of chronic disease type state could be decreased. I presented actually at last year's ASCO as an oral abstract now published in the Lancet, the Momentum Study led by Dr. Rostovchik and myself, many colleagues. This was Mamelodinib versus Danazol in the second line setting, symptomatic, failed jack inhibition and anemic then with uh, an open-label crossover with improvements in symptoms, uh, spleen, and transfusion independence as endpoints. What we identified was, one, there was very significant improvement in symptoms compared to Danazol as the active control arm, and the two updated information, which Aaron Gerd shared at ASH, that those benefits were also durable. Second, we see here uh, improvements really through uh, week uh, 48. Uh, and again, uh, really not that benefit as it relates to the uh, Danazol arm. Patients that then crossed over then did have a benefit when switched to mamelodinib from Danazol. So all of these things further really validating the quality of the responses. As we look at improvement in anemia, again, we saw both improvement, uh, uh, non-inferiority, which was the plan goal from the beginning, really a lean toward superiority. And you see here both transfusion independent duration of response, mamelodinib versus danazol. And then you also see durability of that benefit, as well as change as it relates to crossover. So again, all of it showing very significant benefit in anemia, stable benefit in anemia. We also saw the core, and this was vastly superior to Danazol, improvement in spleen. So mamelodinib, is it a spleen drug? Is it an anemia drug? Is it a symptom drug? I like to think that it's a myelofibrosis drug and that uh, it is treating the disease and then the manifestations of that benefit are splenomegaly symptoms and anemia. Indeed, I think that is an important concept with all of the JAK inhibitors. These agents are not targeted spleen or symptom agents. We measure spleen or symptoms because they're a helpful measure of clinical benefit. They're manifestations of the disease. I think there's probably further benefits that are recurring within the bone marrow milieu and other things that are beneficial to patients. There's been suggestion with most of these drugs, including mamelodinib, that there may be a survival benefit. But I think that's an important point to distinguish them from the other drugs that I had mentioned that truly are anemia drugs. If I use an ESA, I'm hoping that it improves anemia. If I use a drug like mamelodinib, I hope that it's really improving the natural history of that patient's myelofibrosis. Now, further evidence of impact on transfusion requirement. You see here that before and after the decrease in the number of transfusions, 
you see uh, almost all the patients had some improvement or stability of transfusion uh, intensity uh, on the mamalodinib uh, therapy, and we'll have further updates on these data at the at EHA. Now, practical considerations, it's dosed to 200 milligrams a day. Now, although I know there has been a culture uh, of us adjusting the dose of ruxolitinib and patients because of anemia starting off a lower dose, if this drug becomes approved in the near future, please start individuals at 200 milligrams a day. And I've seen this phenomenon as the other JAK inhibitors have rolled out, that people are starting people on lower doses than recommended because of the history that we had with ruxolitinib. The, one of the values of a medicine like mamalodinib is that, again, it can be given at full dose. Indeed, that, that's a parallel benefit to uh, pacridinib that you had seen uh, John present. Again, that the, these agents include, there's even data uh, between it's of 50 to 100 with fedradinib that it can be given at, at full dose. I think there is a dose response benefit in JAK inhibition that is relevant as it relates to the overall benefit. Now, in terms of toxicities, again, non-hematologic toxicities were not common. Small numbers of renal insufficiency or pneumonia. Uh, there are cytopenias, although, of course, it's difficult to separate, you know, what's disease, what's drug, uh, but one still needs to do monitor the blood counts closely. So this individual, we go back to this individual. Uh, let me ask uh, John first. Uh, what might be your course of action for, for this individual? Would you have them remain on ruxolitinib? Would you reduce the rux dose, add danazole? Would you switch to a different JAK inhibitor? If mamalonib were uh, available, would you consider that or procridinib? Yeah, I mean, so I think there's a, um, a number of different options and, and considerations. I think going down on the dose of ruxolitinib sort of misses the point. Once you start reducing the dose of your JAK inhibitor, you're you're actually moving away from the the, the needed activity of, of that drug. You're 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 lessening the JAK inhibition, which is probably overall not not beneficial for the patient. So in this case, I, I don't think I'd reduce the dose of ruxolitinib, but I would look elsewhere um, to maybe swap out ruxolitinib for monolotinib as you presented to sort of to achieve that trifecta of spleen symptom and, and anemia benefit. Um, you know, one could also um, consider uh, pacritinib could be another option here too, um, particularly since the NCCN does endorse it as a second line option, uh, irrespective of the platelet count. Um, so I, th that is the way I would go. Although one could, if, if monolite was not available um, and pacritinib was not accessible, one could add Danazole, you and I did a phase two study some years ago looking at the ability to add Danazole to Ruxolinib to salvage um, anemia responses with a, with a modest effect. Um, but if you're really trying to get the, the full benefit of therapy, you know, you, you'd want to go in with a, an active um, JAK inhibitor um, and, and hopefully one that could improve anemia. So I guess here, it really would be mamalotinib as a, a consideration. Wonderful. Kat, what do you think? Well, you know, I would uh, see what's available that is FDA approved first, uh, unless the patient says they want to be on a clinical trial and momolotinib is still not FDA approved, although we're certainly excited about it, the data that you presented, Ruben, and it looks very promising. Uh, so I would go with an FDA approved drug in this setting. Uh, provided that the patient says they want to just have an FDA-approved drug, probably do a bone marrow biopsy as well as look for any evidence of GI bleeding if somebody's really profoundly anemic. Just because somebody has myelofibrosis doesn't mean they can't have colon cancer or some other reason to be anemic. So I usually do that workup. And because of the 2% blast and the age, I want to make sure that they're not progressing uh, substantially. But uh, for other JAK inhibitors, what's NCCN approved uh, by guidelines is uh, fedratinib as category one A, and then uh, category two B is pacritinib because it was really approved in the less than fifty platelet setting. 
again, I stratify according to what patients want. If they say, you know what, I have had a history of arrhythmias and I'm worried about QT prolongation, then picritinib may not be the best choice. If momolotinib gets approved, yes, that would be lovely. We'd love to give that drug frontline for people that present like this with anemia as their main symptom. If uh, fedratinib is a consideration uh, because we feel their disease isn't really getting handled, they're not getting enough JAG2 inhibition, uh, then that would be the choice. And again, that's where I would think this is a time to potentially do another bone marrow biopsy. And even though when we look at the MIPS, the Mutation Enhanced International Prognostic Scoring System 70, it's really meant to stratify for hematopoietic cell transplant or not based on mutations, it's actually quite useful in everyone. Uh, so I I think we're starting to use that more for next generation sequencing as a, a risk stratifier for patients so they can make these choices. And I just say, these are the side effects, just like we have in chronic myeloid leukemia. You've got dasadinib. Well, if you get short of breath easily, it might not be the best drug. Nalotinib, if you get arrhythmias, may not be the best drug. Um, so clearly, if momolotinib is approved, uh, that would be the one. But um, before that is, I would go with an FDA-approved drug, either fedratinib, and if that's not available, picritinib. Wonderful. Well, I, I hope folks are getting a sense that there's that there's a range of options now. It's more nuanced than it was before. You know, I think there's sometimes a little reluctance to jump to one of the newer agents, but I, I would heavily encourage you to, to consider them. The other point that Kent brought up is really a good one. You know, someone that sees a lot of these patients as referrals or second opinions, you know, isolated anemia. Uh, I certainly have seen a range of, of concerning uh, other causes for that, uh, everything from GYN malignancies, endometrial cancers, certainly colon cancer. So certainly always wear your hat as a hematologist, you know, to be sure. It certainly can be progressive MF. Don't know, no, no question about that, but be, uh, be pretty certain. So again, uh, this individual, again, you know, Clearly, I think it needs an intervention. I think clearly always transfusing, you know, no, no matter what you start, you know, none of that is going to kick in right away. So certainly if a patient needs a transfusion, give them a transfusion, you know, uh, other options, Lispatercept is trying to get an approval, you know, certainly can be given off, uh, off label, you know, I would probably encourage some of the other things first. Uh, but certainly, it, it certainly it, it can be a consideration or of course, uh, a trial. So for our final segment, before we take Q&A, let me hand it over to uh, Kat, who will be taking it through uh, novel mechanisms of action. Thank you so much, Ruben and John, for setting the bar very high. <laughs> anyway, so here's our third tumor board question, worsening disease despite previously effective therapy with a JAK inhibitor. And as Ruben and John were mentioning, there are many choices now. So we know that you really want to refer your patient to a hematologist who actually sees a lot of patients with this disorder that affects one per 100,000 people in this country. So we've got Allison, 70-year-old woman with fibrosis. She's been on ruxolitinib 20 milligrams twice a day for over two years, but despite responding well initially, she now presents with an enlarging spleen, pretty large actually, 16 centimeters below the left costal margin with abdominal symptoms, and then also night sweats and fatigue, which are very common as people find their diseases progressing with long of response to ruxolitinib. And remember, only about 25% of people are on ruxolitinib after five years, uh, in part because of progression. So other findings include a hemoglobin of 9.5, white blood cell count of 14, and a platelet count of 98. So what is the best course of action? Should they continue on ruxolitinib? Should they increase the dose? Should they switch to a different JAK inhibitor? Or consider a clinical trial with add-on therapy that has a different mechanism of action. And that's really where the field has gone over the last few years. So we'll come back to that case in just a few minutes. So in terms of canonical and non-canonical actions of JAK2 and opportunities for therapeutic targeting, what a lot of us in the field have started to realize is that the disease progresses when you're really dealing with monotherapy. And so patients have appropriately demanded that we consider alternative mechanisms of action. And that's not to say that JAK2 inhibition isn't important. It's just what should we add to that to make it sustainable effective. And Ruben brought up this very important point, 
durability of response. Patients want to have durable responses and not have to be switching to something else in a couple of years. So when you look at what the JAK2 signaling pathway does, it can actually activate um, downstream signaling pathways that promote survival in part through STAT3 and STAT5 activation of pro-survival proteins BCLXL and BCL2. And we've been in a very good position recently because of lessons learned from acute myeloid leukemia that BCL2 inhibition can be life saving. The only thing is, it's a little bit more complicated in myelofibrosis. In most patients with myelofibrosis, they've act activated not just BCL2, but other BCL2 family members like BCLXL. And that promotes survival of the malignant clone. So now there's a very active drug called. Navitaclax, which I'll talk about, and that has really um, had really remarkable responses. The other opportunity here is that we have what's called a BET inhibitor bromodomain and N-terminal inhibitor that works inside the nucleus. It's a really important opportunity to really change the epigenome, and that's called filabrasib. And that is something that, again, in combination with ruxolitinib, is looking very interesting. And what's not on this slide is telomerase reverse transcriptase. As these cells start to transition from pre-malignant stem cells to fully malignant leukemia stem cells, they activate a gene called telomerase reverse transcriptase. And while that's supposed to keep our stem cells living longer, unfortunately in myeloproliferative neoplasms, that happens in the malignant clone as shown so nicely by John Mascarenas. And unfortunately, that perpetuates the longevity of the wrong cells. So I'll talk about those three opportunities in the context of combined therapies. So for the pro-survival BCL2 proteins, including BCL-XL, they tend to be overexpressed in the MPN setting as patients progress from lower risk to intermediate and high-risk disease. Now, we know that rexolitinib is very effective at inhibiting JAK2, um, but often in patients, as I mentioned, it's not enough because STAT3 and 5 signaling can activate BCL-XL and also MCL1. We're still looking for an MCL1 inhibitor, by the way, but Navitaclax is very effective at blocking that BCL-XL pro-survival protein and also BCL2. So it's a twofer. It works actually very well. So the addition of nevitaclax to rexolitinib in patients with suboptimal responses to rexolitinib monotherapy has actually demonstrated preliminary efficacy, safety, and evidence of disease modification, which is what we're all looking for now. So this is the phase two refined trial data where we used add-on therapy with nevitaclax in patients with myelofibrosis and a suboptimal response to ruxolitinib. There were 34 patients with intermediate and high-risk myelofibrosis who had evidence of progression or at least a suboptimal response on stable dosing with ruxolitinib of at least 10 milligrams twice daily. Patients received nevitaclax at 50 milligrams once daily, followed by es escalation to a maximum of 300 milligrams once daily in once weekly increments. And what we saw was a spleen volume reduction of 35% was achieved by 26.5% of patients at week 24 and by 41% of patients at any time on study with an estimated median duration of response of SVR35 of 13.8 months. So that's what uh, Ruben was alluding to that durability of response. So with patients who achieved the SVR35 and total symptom score uh, 50 at week 24 and bone marrow fibrosis grade improvement at any time on the study, you see that they tended to do quite well. So there's the nice thing about this study, it actually took into account the grade of bone marrow fibrosis, which we're really using, as Dr. Mesa mentioned, as a key prognosticator in disease now. We're also looking at um, durability of response. So when you look at the refined study, the total symptom score and bone marrow fibrosis improvements, those were noted with the addition of nevitaclax to ruxolitinib. A greater than 50% reduction in total symptom score was achieved in 41% of patients. And really in a very positive way, bone marrow fibrosis improved by one to two grades 
in a third of a valuable patient. So that's a game changer. Reversible thrombocytopenia without clinically significant bleeding was also seen and actually was the most common adverse event. And I should say it was manageable with dose reductions and interruptions, but also tended to last a little bit longer than we'd originally anticipated and could go out for as much as a month. So it's something to keep in, in the back of your mind. Navitaclax will block BCLXL in the progenitors that give rise to platelets. So the effect lasts a little bit longer uh, than the seven days you'd expect to just make more platelets from megakaryocytes. In terms of a role for combination therapy in JAK inhibitor naive myelofibrosis, cohort three of the refined study role enrolled JAK inhibitor naive patients with myelofibrosis. They received Navitaclax 200 milligrams as a starting dose plus rexolitinib. And you see that this tended to work quite well in patients who have uh, poor risk uh, or poor prognostic findings. Uh, one third of patients who achieved SVR 35, meaning a spleen volume reduction of 35%, also had a reduction in bone marrow fibrosis. Again, that may impact the durability of response. So when you look at novel mechanisms of action and treatment refractory disease, we're really going after durability of response. I'm going to really hammer that point home. Uh, this is work done by Dr. Mascarenas, who's here on the call. And really, um, again, going after where can we uh, think about treating patients who have shown a suboptimal or inadequate response to JAK inhibitors. Is there another mechanism of action we can target? And this is an example of targeting telomerase reverse transcriptase, TERT for short. Elizabeth Blackburn discovered it and found it was a double-edged sword. She got the Nobel Prize for showing it's important for stem cell longevity, but when activated too much can lead to cancer progression. So in this uh, EMBARC study uh, that was uh, led by Geron, and in this case, Dr. Mascarenas is the lead PI, patients were randomized to a metal stat 9.4 milligrams per kilogram or 4.7 milligrams per kilogram IV once every three weeks. And at 24 weeks, spleen and symptom response rates were 10.2% and 32% respectively in the 9.4 milligram per kilogram arm. Treatment with a metal stat 9.4 milligram per kilogram led to an overall survival of almost 30 months. Again, back to sustainability of response. So that was quite dramatic. And this coincided with bone marrow fibrosis improvement in 40% of patients. So again, it looks like if you can reduce bone marrow fibrosis, you may have an enhanced sustainability of response in these um, higher risk patients, relapse refractory model fibrosis. Now, um, this takes us to overall survival. When you look at biomarkers and bone marrow fibrosis assessments, it suggested a selective effect on the malignant clone with patients who had bone marrow fibrosis improvement actually having a greater overall survival. So again, uh, John Mascarenas um, demonstrated that. This had been alluded to in two previous New England Journal papers in very early phase clinical studies, but this uh, was the, the most robust clinical study to show the overall survival change. Now, what about novel mechanisms of action beyond uh, the drug we just talked about, imetilstat? BET inhibitor. BET inhibitor palabresive uh, combined with ruxolitinib is active in therapy-naive myelofibrosis. So palabrasib and ruxolitinib showed clinically meaningful improvements in splenomegaly and symptoms, as you see in these waterfall plots here. So morphosis has continued to develop uh, this combination strategy. Biomarker findings indicated potential disease modification, and uh, combination has generally had a favorable safety profile. Uh, so this takes us back to tumor board question number three. You have Allison, our 70-year-old woman with myelofibrosis, who's been on ruxolitinib 20 milligrams twice a day for over two years, who despite responding well initially, now presents with an enlarging spleen, pretty big at 16 centimeters below the left costal margin with abdominal symptoms, night sweats, fatigue, and then the findings of anemia, slightly elevated white count, and uh, mild thrombocytopenia. So I'll ask Ruben first, what would be your uh, suggested course of action here? Well, so he's 70. He's already been on kind of maximum dose. He has a, a big spleen, has symptoms. You know, the blood counts are, are pretty good. Uh, you know, so one, I'd say, you know, we've maxed out the, the rucks, you know, having an inadequate response clearly at, at maximum dose. 
you know, at 98, I think, you know, this is an individual, you know, one, there's no, no benefit to further increasing the dose. You know, there have been times I've gone above 20 twice a day in PV for paritis, but certainly not in this setting. Certainly fedradnib, you know, would be a real consideration for this individual. The platelets are above 50,000. Uh, there's good evidence from the Jakarta 2 study that probably, you know, outside of a clinical trial would be my, you know, my, my first choice. Uh, certainly there's data from Persist 2 that picaridinib could be considered in this uh, setting as well. Uh, undoubtedly, a clinical trial with an add-on therapy certainly would be very appropriate uh, as well. You know, and obviously the decision to go on a clinical trial is a personal one, both on based on, on access, uh, distance that one has to travel, you know, and other pieces. But certainly, uh, again, I think they're in an Avidoclax, Palabresib, any of those clinical trials with add-on would be, you know, would be very reasonable. Uh, but I know these folks are out there and they don't all go on trials. So for those that that aren't uh, using fedradinib or picaridinib yet, you know, I think certainly considered in these sort of circumstances. How about yourself, John? I think I, I agree with you. I mean, I think the, the point to remember here, particularly for the clinicians in the audience, is that often when we think that patients aren't garnering benefit from ruxolinib, uh, we, we sometimes make that mistake of yanking the rucks and then figuring out that they still were actually enjoying some degree of benefit and they can get this very robust cytokine rebound and feel pretty unwell. So I would I would probably opt to, and obviously I'm biased uh, at a center where we you know we try to do clinical trials. I probably would put this patient on a clinical trial with an add-on strategy, as Kat nicely laid out. Nivitoclax would be a consideration, um, and it, it is in phase three testing um, for patients either upfront or patients in the second line that have lost that initial response. I think a metal stat would be another interesting consideration. It's not. It's not necessarily the drug I think of as a spleen and symptom benefiting drug, although it does have activity in that setting. It's more of a survival uh, sort of endpoint drug, and it's, now it's being combined with ruxolinib based on some preclinical modeling um, by some colleagues at, at uh, Mount Sinai. And then, you know, I would also kind of consider the fact that 70 is not, it's not elderly. Um, 70 is still a transplantable age. So I think it's someone who's having uh, progressive disease like this. I think transplant should still be considered... But I, I'm not sure I would send the patient right to transplanters. Transplanters typically don't like uh, spleens at 16 centimeters. So I, I would still employ some intermediate uh, medicinal approach, perhaps with an add-on strategy with an eye to transplant if Allison was so inclined. Well, thanks so much. And transplant generally works better, as you were mentioning, John, when the spleen is a little bit smaller. And if we're really getting a reduction in bone marrow fibrosis, again, engraftment should be better as well. Uh, so that um, sums up the recommendations. It looks like we're all on the same page. Just to say the patients have options now. Uh, continuing therapy unchanged is suboptimal. Increasing the current dose is unlikely to be beneficial, as Ruben, you mentioned. Switching to an alternative JAK inhibitor is a guideline-recommended approach by the National Comp Comprehensive Cancer Network, and those new guidelines are out now for this year. Clinical trial enrollment is a feasible option, including pursuit of add-on therapy or a different mechanism of action, as you mentioned, John, with a metal stat, again, on a clinical trial. But we're going to have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to therapeutic options. I think um, really the point is don't wait too long because patients have these options and they really need to know about them. And that's where we'd like to guide the audience here when we go to the chat and answer some of these questions. Back to you, Ruben. Wonderful. Well, some take-homes before we have some questions and some have come in in the chat in the few moments that we have. Uh, first, MF is a heterogeneous disease. Clearly, you have to be thinking about disease risk, individual factors, as well as our options. We have three going on four JAK inhibitors. They clearly have benefit. They clearly both overlap in terms of areas of efficacy, but they do have some important distinguishing factors in terms of toxicities we manage or expectations of, of efficacy. Anemia is a challenging problem. There's limited approved options. Uh, and certainly we're hopeful that that fourth option with mamalodinib may come to realization. So again, we will have more nuanced options for our patients. They're really thrombocytopenic picridinib. If they need good upfront jack inhibition, there's both rux and fedradinib. We have mamalodinib, again, that may play a role with significantly anemic patients in either setting. So let's transition to some questions. So let me ask 
John, perhaps for this first one, when is it appropriate to use dose increase rather than change medication when it's experiencing a suboptimal response to ruxolitinib? So I think, you know, I think the decision to dose modify RUX depends on a lot of different uh, aspects and variables. Um, so I think if you're already at doses of greater than 10 milligrams twice daily and you're not, you know, you're not achieving, you know, maximum spleen and symptom benefit, although one could go up on the dose and, and, and sometimes that is, that is a, a thought, um, you, there is a dose-dependent improvement in spleen, but unlikely uh, symptom burden. So I think if you're already at doses of 15 or 20 milligrams twice daily of RUX, um, I think that is when I'd be looking for the second line option. And you know, in many cases, I think fedratinib would be a consideration, fedratinib would be a consideration, or of course, on a multiple choice question, uh, clinical trial is always the right answer. So clinical trial consideration as an add-on strategy. Wonderful. Maybe I'll take this this second one and then to pass the third one to, to, to uh, Kath. But once you're a community hematologist oncologist refer an MF patient to an academic center hemonc? Well, I think really kind of twofold. One, I think, you know, younger patients, higher risk, the issue of stem cell transplant, it clearly, uh, I think having a transplanter on board for someone who potentially could receive a transplant in the future is helpful. You know, so unless transplant is really completely excluded from the get-go, you know, they're very elderly, they've got severe comorbidities. I think having them at least have met a transplanter. It's a very complicated therapy. I think having them plugged in is, is very helpful. Second, I think in particular patients that are not having a perfect response to, uh, to RUCs aren't straightforward, or if you're near one and participation in a clinical trial could be helpful. You know, it's not a common disease. You know, I'm very mindful that, that again, my colleagues in the community are, are trying to, to manage a whole bunch of different diseases. That's incredibly challenging. You know, there's a lot of nuance here in MF. You know, I think it's perfectly reasonable for patients to see a, an MPN focused person, you know, periodically just to help co-manage, you know, is there in a trial? Which of these agents should we use? You know, I think each of us on today's call, you know, have that sort of relationship with many colleagues uh, in the community. Uh, just like if I had a patient came in and they also had myeloma, I would promptly send them to myeloma expert, you know, trying to keep track of myeloma in of itself is complicated uh, enough, you know, so certainly don't be overly reluctant to, to include someone else in the team. Uh, Kat, let me ask you th this question. So how quickly do responses rebound when transitioning from one JAK inhibitor to another? You know, we've talked about using them, but again, you know, how do you transition? Uh, when do you stop the, the first drug? Uh, always good questions. Yeah, this is a really important question. And you alluded to that earlier, Ruben, and that was what concerned us in the very early phase clinical trials with rexolitinib when people were taking quite high doses. Uh, they would drop their blood pressure if they stopped it immediately rather than tapering. And so we have to remember with rexolitinib, uh, when people are on the 15 to 20 milligram dose twice a day, we really need to taper. Uh, so generally, I taper over the course of five days. And then uh, once they're off that for two days, then start to add the different JAK inhibitors. If they're off for a period longer than that, with Rexolitinib be the most commonly used JAK inhibitors still, they tend to rebound with their symptoms. So the symptoms come back one to two weeks after stopping Rexolitinib, which is a very good repressor of symptoms. And that's because it's very good at inhibiting cytokines that fuel those symptoms. We don't really see much of a withdrawal in terms of symptoms coming roaring back when you stop fedratinib or pacritinib. That really seems more specific for uh, ruxolitinib. So I'm just careful to warn people with ruxolitinib, your symptoms are going to start coming back. You're going to have myelofibrosis symptoms of night sweats, pruritus or itchy skin, and then joint pains. Uh, but that can be turned around fairly quickly with the new JAG2 inhibitors provided, as you were alluding to, Ruben, and also you talked about, John, that we use them at the right doses. So what frequently happens in the community, and that's because people are looking after so many different types of cancers, is that you have suboptimal dosing with 
not just ruxolitinib, but also fedratinib. And you can imagine that's probably going to happen to bacritinib and momolotinib because people think less is more. You really need to dose appropriately and think about the adverse events or the side effects and how to manage those a priori. Um, but this is a very uh, simple problem to handle. I think the harder one is when people go into hospital. They go in in septic. People want to hold their JAK inhibitor. And is it always appropriate to do so? And certainly with um, ruxolitinib, we know we have to taper. Um, if you know if they're really sick, you just have to hold it. But we have to warn the inpatient teams. And that gets back to your point, Ruben, about it's good to to have an MPN specialist helping you in the background for situations like that. Wonderful. Maybe for final question, we'll throw it John's way. Is there a logical doublet or triplet regimen using a jack inhibitor backbone? that could be used to address various symptoms in spleen, as well as make a profound impact on fibrosis? Uh, that, that's a great question. Um, I don't think I have a great answer for it. I think we don't know is probably the best answer. Each of these jack inhibitors we realize are distinct. They're distinct in their kinome profile, and probably there are differences that allow them for very specialized niches. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of room for jack inhibitors. Now, which jack inhibitor is ideal as a combination partner with a BET inhibitor, BCL, 2XL inhibitor, uh, any other um, active agent that's relevant in this class, I, I don't think we know. I mean, most of them have been, treated, have been tested right now as ruxolitinib is the most commonly used um, JAK inhibitor, but there may be benefits of uh, ACBR1 or IRAC1 or even ADAR1 for that matter in terms of accommodation partners. So I think uh, there's still a lot of work to be done here. And I think phase two testing, maybe it doesn't require phase three in every setting, but phase two testing with some of these agents that are coming uh, perhaps to market with some of the other jack inhibitors will provide some confidence across the jack inhibitor spectrum. Um, and then we may get a sense that one may be uh, superior than the other with that combination partner, but uh, yet to be yet to be defined. Also, some final thoughts. Uh, again, appreciate uh, the, the tremendous input from our, our wonderful panelists, uh, Dr. Mascarenas, Dr. Jameson. Uh, appreciate all of you uh, uh, watching this evening. We hope that this has been a helpful uh, event uh, and certainly uh, look forward to the next one. Likewise. Thank you so much, Ruben, John, and the audience. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash YJX860. This educational activity is supported by independent educational grants from AbbVie, CTI Biopharma Corporation, and GSK.